You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. The scripture passage for today is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites, these are the creatures that you're allowed to eat from the land animals. You can eat any animal that has divided hoofs, completely spit, split, and that reaches food. But of animals that reach you food and have divided hoofs, you must not eat the following. The camel that reaches food, it does not have divided hoofs, so it is unclean for you. The rock badger that reaches food, it does not have divided hoofs, so it is unclean for you. The hare that reaches food, it does not have divided hoofs, so it is unclean for you. The pig that has completely divided hoofs, it does not reach you food, so it is unclean for you. You must not eat the fish, flesh of the animals, or touch their dead bodies. They are unclean to you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. in the room, quick show of hands. How many of you are currently raising babies slash toddlers? Okay, a couple. How many of you are raising kids in elementary age? Okay. How many of you are raising children who are middle school, high school aged? And how many of you here uh, have children who are college or adult children? Awesome. Follow-up question, follow-up question. How many of you who have, let's say, teenagers, parent them in the same way as you used to parent your toddler? Anybody? (laughs) Some of the teenagers in the room are like, "Mm mm-hmm, raise that hand, raise it, get it up, come on now, get it up. This is church. How many of you who have adult children, parent them the same way you used to parent your elementary age child? No. Yeah. Question for all of us. How many of you, don't matter how old you are, every time you're around your parents, they still parent you like you're in elementary school? That's right. My parents are coming in two weeks, and without a shadow of a doubt, when we go outside, my mom will be like, well, did you remember your coat? I'll say, did you remember your coat? No, I didn't remember my coat. I'm going to go back in and get it. No. We don't parent that way. Why? Because your child needs something different from you the older they get. They need different strategies. They need different approaches from you in high school, in college, and when they're grown compared to what they needed when they were a baby or an elementary age kid. It's interesting. 
It's really interesting because today we're actually continuing a sermon series we began a couple of weeks ago. If this is your first time here with us, today is week three of a sermon series we began uh, just at the very beginning here of October called You Lost Me at Leviticus. And every week so far in October, really what we've been trying to do is what the subtitle says. We've been trying to make sense, particularly of those passages of Scripture, and most of them are in the Old Testament, these passages that are confusing, they're troubling, they don't make a lot of sense, and they don't really align with who Jesus was or the things that Jesus taught. And so week in and week out, the main thing that we've been doing is we've been reminding ourselves, we've been reminding ourselves of how the Bible was always supposed to be read. Now, I'm not saying every church or every Christian out there practices this but how the Bible was always supposed to be read. It was supposed to be read as a book of gradual revelation, not fixed. It was supposed to be read as a gradual unveiling into the heart and the character and the personality of God. The image kind of looks like this, that with the turning of every book and with the turning of every page, what we as Christians believe is we believe the picture of Jesus the glimpse we have of Jesus was getting clearer and clearer and clearer the closer and closer and closer we got to the Gospels. And this is really good news. Really good news, particularly when you stumble into books like Leviticus. You stumble into books that, again, sometimes paint pictures of God that feel really outdated, they feel barbaric, they seem backward. What this helps us remember is that Leviticus was never the destination. Leviticus was never the ultimate plan that God had for us. It was merely a step, albeit small, a step towards the ultimate type of relationship that God was going to have with us in Jesus. And so again, all of that is so, so important. It's so, so important specifically when you dig into the meat, (laughs) pun intended, of all of the different passages that you find in Leviticus, case in point being the one we read Today, today is a reminder that sometimes in Leviticus, but not just in Leviticus, sometimes in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you'll stumble into these passages where it's so heavy with rules. All these rules, what you can and can't do, what you should and shouldn't do, or in this case, what you can and cannot eat, right? And so one of the questions that I think needs to be asked whenever we come to passages like these, whenever we're trying to study and interpret passages like these, is this. All these rules that we just heard, were these rules something that God needed? Were these requirements that God needed from us? Or is it possible that these were less what God needed and more what we needed? Put simply, Are these rules uh, an indicator? Do they have more to say about who God is, God's personality, God's heart, what type of relationship God wants to have with us? Or do they have more to say about the state of humanity at the time? Do they have more to say about where we were 3,500 years ago in our spiritual development, if you will? Well, for answers to that, We're going to have to dig in. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along today, go ahead and snag those and open up back again uh, to Leviticus chapter 11. You can grab a smart device as well if you'd like to do it that way. In Leviticus chapter 11, 
Uh, I'm not going to reread them to you. Instead, I'm a visual person. Uh, I do a little bit better with that. And so here's your menu. Uh, here's your religious menu uh, for what, according to Leviticus chapter 11, you are allowed to eat versus what you are not allowed uh, to eat. And so take notes. These are very, very important, okay? Uh, a couple things to point out. Uh, bad news for all of you reptile eaters out there. You can't do that anymore, okay? Uh, I know it was uh, cool for you, normal for you. It's weird and now unfaithful. But also good news for you grasshopper eaters out there, that if you're into that kind of thing, you can continue uh, that unbelievably disgusting habit. And so we read this, right, and it's, like, for us here in 2023, we read this and we're like, good Lord, like, this just feels so arbitrary, this feels so weird, it feels so strange, and furthermore, why Christians today read this, they look over lists like this and charts like this, and we're so baffled and so confused, is because we know where the story eventually goes. For example, we know when we read the Gospels that Jesus doesn't harp on these, Jesus doesn't prescribe these. He doesn't push these. And furthermore, we keep going into the book of Acts. We learn in the early church that there's this moment with Peter where God shows up to Peter in a vision, and he shows him all the animals, and he says, take and eat. And Peter, being a good, faithful, religious follower, was thinking about this, all what we just read in Leviticus chapter 11, thinking to himself, dear Lord, no way. Like, that's wrong. That's unfaithful. That would be sinful for me to do those things. And what does God say to him? Never consider unclean what God has made pure. In a moment, in a moment, in a singular vision, God does away with all of these dietary codes and laws that they would have been following for centuries up until this point. And so, understandably, this begs a really, really important question, which is, if God was eventually going to do away with all these rules, if these eventually were not going to be required for us to be found faithful with God, why make them in the first place? Like, why even put them into motion? And this goes back to the question I asked earlier. Is it possible that some of these rules, some of these prohibitions, some of these commands we find in the Old Testament had less to say about what God needed from us and had more to say about what we needed at that particular moment in time in our development, in our understanding, in our ability to receive truth from God. And there's a lot of evidence that points to the latter. I'll give you one. One of the things that uh, scholars have done well to point out to us is when they review passages like these, this isn't the only one, but when they review passages like these, they give very, very strict rules, strict do's and don'ts list of what you are or are not allowed to eat. One of the reasons that they point out as to why God gave these rules that some seem somewhat arbitrary to us is actually for medical reasons. There's actually some good reasons for our sake that these rules were put into motion. Those of you who are medical personnel or those of you who are experts on WebMD, every time you get a sort of sniffle situation, you understand that it's actually very dangerous. It's not only incredibly gross, but it's very dangerous to consume uncooked pork, various types of uncooked 
meet. And so this is where, again, it's so important. One of the values here at our church is that when we read and study scripture, we do so with, not opposed, with the voices of science and what science helps us understand. It helps us understand that what we know now is what they didn't know back then is that participating and consuming some of these things was actually going to be detrimental to your physical health. That if you consumed these uncooked meats, you can get salmonella or listeria, and that might lead you down to where you might even lose your life because of the lack of treatment that you would have been able to get because of lack of medical back then. Science helps us understand. Dare I say it saves us from worshiping a legalistic God who makes arbitrary, useless rules. Instead, it helps us understand that this is one example, one example of many, where God is not trying to spoil our fun, but trying to protect us from harm. If you look for it, riddled throughout Scripture, this is the God that you'll find. One who's not trying to ruin your fun, One who's not trying to keep you from good stuff, but trying to protect you from harmful stuff. And I'll just, I'll confess, it has taken me a long time to learn that and to trust that. I can think of so many times throughout the course of my life where I feel like God has imposed a rule in my life or a limit or a boundary in my life. And immediately, my first reaction is one of two things. Number one, I'm like a little grumpy teenager that's like, you never let me do anything fun. I don't want to do this no more. So I sort of think that God's trying to keep me from there's some really good, beautiful experience out there and God just wants to keep me and hold me back and keep me to a boring real life. And the other temptation I have whenever I find this limit or this boundary in my life, maybe I don't go that far, but I'll go, hear you, hear that. But like, I'm strong enough. Like, I'm brave enough. I'm faithful enough. Like, I don't need that limit. I don't need that rule in my life. I don't need that sort of uh, boundary. I've got this all by myself. Like, I'm not going to stumble into that. I'm not going to fall into that type of behavior. I'll give you an example. One place in the last couple of years where I've felt God do this uh, is actually in relation to my mental health. So I've shared this on a couple of different occasions in sermons before that uh, anxiety and depression for me, uh, they're not chronic things, chronic experiences for me. They are for some of you. Um, But they're seasonal for me. So they'll come in waves. If there's particular factors going on at work or there's particular factors going on at home or particular factors going on in the world, I'm more or less prone Uh, to suffering from anxiety and depression. And a couple of years ago, I was praying about it, and I felt God sort of give me a rule. And this rule was, whenever you feel like it's growing to a place where you can't handle it anymore, you have to go for a 30 to 45 minute walk. To which I replied, I don't want to do that. Um, That's inconvenient. Like, I got stuff to do. And sometimes I'm tired when I come home from work. It's raining outside. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, That sounds uh, completely useless. But guess what? Speaking of science, science backs it up. It's not the only way, but one of the most powerful ways to combat depression is actually exercise. Some of you have read these studies before, right? And your experience might be different than mine, but here's what I can testify from my own experience. The times when I have submitted to that rule, when I have obeyed 
that rule in my own life. I'm not going to say it's this magic formula and I just skip into the house like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy now. Like, that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Don't get it twisted. But I will say it doesn't have nearly the same power over me as it did before. And I know that because I can think of a handful of instances when I didn't do it. I didn't abide. I didn't submit. I said, I'm stronger than that. I don't need that no more. I'm too tired, too busy. It's raining outside. I ain't doing none of that. And slowly but surely, I find myself slipping into a mental state where I say things I don't mean. I think things that are not me. I do things that are not in alignment with who I want to be as a person. And so one of the questions I've had to ask myself routinely is the same question I want you to leave with here today. And friends, this is why we still need books like Leviticus. Some of you, like, I, I get it. You might read those and go, why do we even need that? It's so outdated. We don't need this anymore. When you study in context, you find out that you really need it because what books like Leviticus, what passages like Leviticus chapter 11 ask us to do is they ask us to consider our own life, to interrogate our own life, and to ask this question. Where have I lately? Where have I recently confused a gate with a guardrail. Where have I confused God putting a limit, a rule, a boundary in my life? I confused it as a gate. What do gates do? Gates keep you out of something fun. They keep you out of something really exciting. They keep you out of something really, really good. What does a guardrail do? A guardrail keeps you from, oh, I don't know, careening off of a cliff. Where have we confused? I want you to really think about this in your own life. Where have we confused God putting a boundary, a rule, a, a, something in our lives? And we've said, oh, you're just trying to keep me from something. But really what God's trying to do is protect you from something. Where have we seen God's guidance and direction of our lives as prohibition instead of loving protection? So that's the first reason why we need uh, stories like this. Uh, and there's more. We'll keep going because there's another one. If you keep going back to this passage, you'll find there's another reason. There's another reason why books like Leviticus chapter 11 are so, so vitally important to us still today here in 2023. And there's more reasons as to why uh, when we read these passages, we can begin to have a little more confidence that maybe they have less to say about what God needed from us in that moment and more to say about what we needed in that particular moment in our spiritual development. And the second reason is this. The other reason why, and scholars will point to this as well, the other reason why God makes these strict prohibitions of what you can and cannot eat here in this moment is not only for medical reasons, but it's for religious reasons. Here's what I mean by that. Did you catch, not only here in Leviticus 11, but there's also several moments in the Old Testament where there's all this negative and prohibitive talk around pork, around pigs. You exposed this before? Like, has God not had Apple Ridge Farm hickory smoked bacon before? I don't understand. Like, if we in 23, it doesn't make any sense. I put some on my sandwich, and it was uh, two days ago, and it was the closest to heaven I feel like I've been uh, in a really long time. And so, like, what's... We in 2023, we read this, we don't, like, what's, what's the deal? Like, what, what is God's sort of obsession with prohibiting pigs? Like, what's up with that? And again, this is where it's really important that when you study scripture, you study it not only with the voices of science, but you study it with the voices of historical and cultural context. Because here's what you'll find. Did you know that during that time where these pronouncements, these rules were made, 
the people of Israel were surrounded by all kinds of people who worshipped all kinds of different gods. Here's a list of the most popular gods worshipped in the Old Testament. Now, what you need to know about all of these gods, all of these different religions in the Old Testament, is that along with the belief in those gods came a series of rituals and practices that, let's just call it what it is, are incredibly downright disturbing. Some of these gods, in order to be found faithful to them, you had to practice things like self-mutilation, you had to practice things like child sacrifice, you had to practice things like sexual perversion, that's just a couple. And do you want to know something about each of these religions? You want to know what the most popular form of animal sacrifice that each of them required was? You want to know what their primary animal that was required to sacrifice in order to be found faithful to them? Ready? Oink, oink on three. One, two, three. Oink, oink. That's right. Pigs. Pigs. Pigs were the, mo- were the primary, they were the most popular form of sacrifice in all of these type of religions. And so what am I trying to get you to see? I'm trying to get you to see that deep in Scripture, there's not only a literal meaning, but sometimes there's a symbolic meaning to what God is saying to God's people. And here, in this moment, what that means is that when we read books like Leviticus chapter 11, and we read like, oh, I'm not allowed to eat pig, I'm not allowed to eat bacon, like what the heck is going on? When we read this, this is what we see. This is all we see. We only see the pig. But when they heard this, knowing who used pigs for sacrifices and the types of stuff that they did and the ways that they lived, when they heard pig, they heard this. Don't do this. Don't be this way. Don't live this way. Don't treat each other like this. And good God, I don't need none of that in this relationship. This ain't who I am. Over and over and over, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, watch this constant refrain where God is saying to God's people, you are called to be different. You're called to be set apart. If you follow me, you're going to run contrary to the current sometimes. You're going to have to live different. You've got to look different. John chapter 15, I chose you out of the world. Romans chapter 12, don't conform to the patterns and customs and behaviors of this world. 1 Peter chapter 1, be holy as I am holy. Over and over and over again, there's this refrain where God is saying, if you're going to follow me, you got to look different. And it's not different in a sort of like superior way. It was never a different be better than everyone else. It was be different because Isaiah You're the light of the nations. I'm starting with you so that other people can look in on what we have. They can look at the relationship we have. They can look at the kingdom we're building, and they can say, holy cow, I want some of that. I need that in my life. And so, friends, again, why we need this witness from Scripture to our lives today is because we need, on occasion, people to come along and ask us this question need you to ask this question of your life, which is this. Similarly, when you think of your life lately, when you think about who you are, who you've been, the way you act, the way you show up, does your life look any different? That's a literal question. 
Does your life, does our lives look any different from the world? When you think about your life versus your friends who don't believe, don't come to church, I mean, other than this, other than being here for this hour, what are you doing that looks different to the world? Anything? Is there anything about the way we parent, the way we are married, the way we show up for our friends, our social media presence, if maybe you're a manager or a leader in your uh, job, uh, the way in which you steward the employees that report to you, are you just like every other boss that they've ever had or are you different? I want you to start asking this question of every single aspect of your life. Is your life look any different to the world around you? Does your life do anything to the non-believing person to make them stop and to take stock and to evaluate, man, like, I don't, it seems like this person has so much purpose and it feels like the way they're doing it is healthier than the way I do it. Is that what's happening when you show up in the world or not? And if not, why not? Well, I thought that was like the pastor's job. No, it's your job. It's our job. Why not? If it doesn't look any different, why not? And if it doesn't look any different, why should anyone care? Close here. The truth is, a lot of people today don't care. They look in on what we do week in and week out. They hear about what we do week in and week out. You know what they hear? The only thing they hear of most churches and most expressions of Christianity is, oh, yep, see, that's just a group of people that they're just obsessed about lists of rules and things you can and can't do, things you should and shouldn't do. That's all it is. That's all. That's the only value. It's just a big legalistic community that's trying to make themselves feel better in the presence of God because they kept all the rules and they told all of us how jacked up and how messed up we are for not keeping all their rules. Yeah. I don't care. And quite frankly, nor should they. And furthermore, those of you inside the church, you're at a crossroads, aren't you? Christianity writ large, capital C, Christianity writ large is at a crossroads because we're at this moment here in Christianity, in this, this movement, we're at this moment in the movement where we're struggling really, really mightily with, well, what, we just... Okay, like, I understand that, like, some of these rules are really destructive and harmful, but some of them are really, really helpful. Like, Kyle, you just said like, some examples of where rules have been really helpful to your life. And so, like, like what's the, like, we, we're confused. We're like, I don't, which ones were for a particular group and people in time, and which ones were for all people in all places and all time? Like, I don't know the difference. And until I know the difference, I can't competently show up in the world and be the person who God's called me to be. And if that's you, you're not alone. But if that is you, my coaching to you is actually not my coaching. My coaching to you is Jesus's coaching to you. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, he says, if you want, if you're trying to figure out uh, you know, who, what rules are actually required by God and needed by God that actually help and aid in this relationship with God, you need to make sure that they pass what we might call the fruit test, the 
fruit test. Band, you can go ahead and come on up. You see, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is huddling up with non-really believing religious-ish folks and a lot of religious, pietistic leaders as well at the same time because the people at this time were also at a crossroads. They, too, were really struggling with, well, like, what, what is essential versus what's non-essential? And what's negotiable versus what's non-negotiable? And Jesus says, I'll give you the answer. Mark chapter 7, he says this, you will know them by their fruit. Put simply, Jesus says, if you're still today trying to figure out, gosh, like what parts of my faith do I want to keep and what parts do I want to let go? What parts of my faith actually align with Jesus and which ones seem man-made? It seems human-made. Like how do I know the difference? Jesus gives you the tool. He says, you have my permission to religiously interrogate the hell out of every single type of spiritual teaching that's been given to you and to interrogate it asking the question of what kind of fruit is it bearing in my life? What is it doing in me? I want you to think in your own life. Think about uh, the communities you were raised in. Think about the Christianity you were exposed to. Think about the spirituality you were uh, cultivated in. Think about all the rules that you were told, things you should and shouldn't do, things you can and cannot do. And I want you to ask a bigger question, which is, yeah, yeah, but like, what did those rules do to me? Now, some of those rules made you better people, didn't they? They made you more generous, they made you more compassionate, they made you more forgiving, they made you actually care about the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the oppressed. But I'm also willing to bet that there are rules that you've been keeping for a long time and you actually don't know why. Most of the time, what it does, it just makes you more anxious, it makes you feel more insecure, and maybe sometimes it's even made you mean and judgmental exclusive to the persons who didn't follow that rule like you did. And so friends, what today is, uh, is today is an invitation. There's no other way to put it. Today's an invitation uh, to those of you who you came into worship today and Maybe you've been carrying some of those rules. You've been carrying some of those, like you, you came from communities that painted this black and white, very reactive, very vengeful, very legalistic expression of God. And for you today, the invitation uh, is not just from me. I think it's from Jesus uh, who is saying to you, I'm going to need you to put that down. I'm going to have a shot at getting you more free. I need you to put it down. But conversely, that's the kind of the, this is the weird crossroads we're at here today. Conversely, we also have people here today who maybe you came in and you didn't grow up in that community. You didn't come up with that exposure to Christianity. Maybe you have the opposite struggle, which is you just don't see any need for rules. You don't see any uh, need for laws. You don't see any need for any of those things. Like, I, you know, I've done fine. I define morality my own way. I define right and wrong my own way. I can figure it out myself. But if you were really honest, so long as you were the only one leading your life, if you were really honest, deep down, you feel lost too. So for you, the invitation is not to adopt a bunch of religious rules, 
but it's to start today, right now. Trusting in God's protection. Trusting in God's guidance. Trusting that the God that we talk about week in and week out, if he's prescribing something to us, it is only for our good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.